Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is John Riccatello, CEO of Unity Software, alongside with my host, Amin Bensed. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mandeep, great to be here and thanks for having me. So maybe, John, we can start off with a high-level question around gaming. And, and I, I listened to the NVIDIA analyst day where they had a slide, you know, around just the average Gen Z user is spending more than seven hours per week on gaming. And so gaming now cuts across, you know, leisure, art, sports, much broader now. And and there is that creative part of gaming that is kind of coming out more and more. So how do you view your addressable market given uh, that has been your focus for so many years and how has uh, that changed over time? Well, let me just address a couple of things. So gaming is the biggest media in the history of the planet. So more people engage in gaming than any other form of entertainment. I find it interesting. I, I read the other day where Google's goal was to get internet penetration above a half the world's population. Just on Unity, we track 3.9 billion MAUs of people playing our games every month, which is also, you know, a little more than half the planet. So I guess there's some people sharing iPhones or whatever it is that they're sharing, but there's never been anything like it. And it's, it's really understandable. I mean, if you think about you know, we went from, you know, listening to Aristophanes in a stadium and maybe you could, you know, get, you know, a few thousand, 10,000 people. I think that was the total population of Athens at the time. And we progressed from there into more and more mass media, obviously print. You know, the first electronic media, I guess it wouldn't count more as code, but radio, uh, television. And, you know, the internet has got so many advantages in terms of personalization, immediacy, and the primary form of entertainment over that, you know, new technology collection of, of is really gaming. And so, you know, I would actually probably dispute the seven hours. I think that's a low estimate. I think it's worth remembering that still in mobile, which is by far the highest penetration platform out there, the majority of gaming is off. They ping our servers, but they they may not ping what NVIDIA sees because we have a different position in the space. So hats off to Jen said he runs a, a staggeringly amazing company. But my sense is we're at the earliest innings of the biggest form of media in history, and it isn't stopping now. So maybe, you know, you can clarify some of the things that get mixed up with gaming and just, I, I guess, the space overall in terms of addressable market. When, when you are, you know, looking at your addressable market, does it include AR, VR, NFTs? Is there a favorite acronym that you have in terms of the target market? How, how do you go about even you're looking at your addressable market and just finalizing things that you want to focus on as a company. What's up? The addressable market from Unity's perspective covers everything you've just said. And let me explain. So the, the pretty much other than a game engine like Unity, real-time 3D engine, everything that is, you understand and you would understand in the world of, of content creation tools, like what Adobe makes, you get a JPEG or you get a movie or what Autodesk makes, you get a model. I, I wouldn't say that they're uninteresting. They're super interesting. But once they're done, they're one and done. They're done. The model is finished. You get a model for your kitchen. It never moves again. And I would say it's an artifact. It, it, it's just, it, you could put it on a, if it's small enough on a thumb drive or a bigger drive, but it is a complete 
thing, but never changes unless the creator goes back and edits it again. What you produce in Unity is an application that creates content. It's enormously dynamic. Now we know it's 3D, you can look from every angle, but what's really fascinating about it is that it is real time. So when you touch the screen on a video game and say mobile game, that next frame has never been seen by a human under anywhere else on the planet. That's the first time it's been rendered. Same with, you know, you hit the Xbox, X button on a Sony PlayStation or Microsoft Xbox, or, you know, hit the up or sideways key or whatever control key on a PC game or on an XR device. You're, these are the, these are brand new frames. Now the, the use cases are interesting, but a little over half of all games in the world are built in unity. Thousands per day are built on unity. But also, you know, over two thirds of all AR and VR applications and games are built in Unity. But then also last year alone, major companies, 1,052 that don't make games have come to the Unity platform because they want to participate in this next generation. And, and I'm, I'm kind of loathe to use the term metaverse, but they want to be part of the metaverse. What they really want is something a lot more dynamic. Well, what they've noticed is so like when I was young and I'd watch the you know, sports on TV, I was intently focused. Commercials came up, you know, went off and got a, a beer and a bag of chips. But other than that, that was enough for me to be watching my team and everything that's going on with it. You know, if you look at anybody under 30 today, it's just amazing. They're watching TV and a lot of them have, you know, a tablet open. They might be chatting with a friend on, you know, their maybe, you know, social media app on their phones. And so they're like, you know, they're, they're multitasking all at the same time. What tells me is the level of engagement for a generation born to the CPU, the GPU, and all this opportunity, they need more. And all of these companies, whether it's, you know, you know, the high-end fashion companies or the, you know, the old, you know, engineering construction industries, they start to realize that the younger audience that's coming up is a voracious consumer of data. And you give them what amounts to a trickle and they're going to ignore you. They want the flood tide. They want to separate it. They want to engage. And so we've already seen with customers, again, in, in fashion and jewelry and other industries, even drugstores, that when they get a real-time 3D image, they can cl look close up and see, you know, whatever medicine they're taking, what the ingredients are. It ends up in the basket and gets transacted more often because of that. And, you know, like right now, you know, you're wearing a, what appears to be a, a white shirt and a, and a black sport. If you're like me, you bought that online. Now, the way you buy it online, you see a white shirt, it's a photograph. Sometimes it's a photo, but it's somebody for a video, but it's not a video of someone that's my size or your size. They're usually taller, thinner, and better looking. At least they are versus my self-image. And, but what will be happening, it is technically possible today. And I'm going to walk you through real-time 3D interactive is instead of going to an Everline, Everline website or a Neiman Marcus or a Nike or a JCPenney website um, and, and looking at photos or videos, it can be you in your living room with items from Nike and Everline and Pennies and Sears and Neiman Marcus, all the black jackets you want. And it's you wandering around what you look like in your room with your lighting, with your body measurements. And if you're going on a, a date with your wife or your girlfriend or, you know, going to, you know, back to school night with one of your, your kids, they can be in that same space with you at that same time. And so what's happening is we're breaking through traditional barriers of what was possible. 
And it goes from 2D to 3D. I can look at you from any angle. It goes from them to us, which is probably the most important thing. I'm way more important in my mind, as self-centered as I might be, than some model I have in that. It becomes real time. It can be what I look like in that room with the lighting that is in that room. And you know how colors change and different lighting. I want to know what I look like next to my Christmas tree. And you know, lastly, it can be interactive. In other words, I can be, my daughter who lives in Los Angeles, I live in San Francisco. We could look at us in the room together at the same time together and be shouting with ourselves with each other. And so that level of breakthrough, the next version of the web, that's what real-time 3D promises. Deeply engaging, infinitely more so than 2D, 2D dead images created in the moment. We have customers that are creating AI algorithms and they need 3D images because they're ever more powerful for creating AI algorithms. And some of our customers are creating 4 trillion frames of content per day. In order to train algorithms, they're producing 3D images. No, you couldn't enlist the entire population of the planet to draw those. And yet they can do them in one day in unity, you know, with, with a you know, couple dozen people, you know, driving the interaction. That level of productivity is just fundamentally transformational. And so you ask where our, our, our target audience is. It's all devices. One of the things that Unity is famous for is you create it and it works on an iPhone or a, it works on an Android device. It works on all the XR devices. It works on a game console. It works on literally anything. And that's our great strength. So it's easy for developers. And so we, we cover the spectrum of those devices. And then in, initially it was gaming and then it was auto industry. Then it was engineering and construction. And now it's literally the full gamut of, of, of industrial applications. Hey, John, this is Amin, and I think that is a perfect segue for our next question. And, you know, the number one topic that we talk to when we speak to investors is, as you hinted to, is metaverse, right? And we joke here and we say, if you ask 10 people what metaverse means, you're probably going to get 10 different, different answers. So, you know, how do you guys uh, or how do you see um, and define the metaverse and what is the key opportunity that investors need to remember regarding Unity's opportunity in this uh, new ecosystem? So, so I'm, I'm a little reluctant to sort of promote the terminology metaverse. First off, it's a little bit like looking backwards. I mean, it was in the 1980s that Snow Crash was written and coined the term. You know, but, you know, there, there's no question that Neil Stevenson is a, a brilliant future thinker and prognosticator. He was dead right about a lot of things that he's written about. But, you know, having said that, the term is to become so overused just to be almost meaningless. It means a thousand different things. If you go back to Unity's S1, what we said um, as we were going public, what we said three years before that, is that we saw a world where today one to two percent of the world's content is real-time 3D interactive. That content is what I described to you earlier. And we, we, we predicted that by the end of the, the 2020s, so by 2030, that 40, 50, 60 percent of the world's content would be built in real-time 3D movies, architecture, engineering, construction, all the digital twins games, literally everything. Now there'll still be a place for 2D, but 3D will replace it. It'll be a little bit like television to radio. Rad television didn't replace radio, even though a lot of people imagined that it would, but it augmented it was ultimately a bigger business. And I think that's really where content is going to real time to be interactive because it's infinitely more powerful. But now um, putting aside everyone else's definition of, of the metaverse, let me describe what I think is happening next. You know, more things that are 2D become 3D, more powerful. More things that are non-interactive become interactive, again, more powerful. 
more things that are non-real-time, i.e. dead artifacts, become live application. Again, more powerful. I see that happening at a staggering scale. The principal enablers are things like 5G. You mentioned Jensen earlier from NVIDIA. Those incredibly powerful GPUs he builds. The other thing that's enabling is the orchestration of GPU and CPU power. Today, we typically uh, use a device like a mobile device. The, we use the, the, the compute power from our iPhone or Android phone. But we'll be able to use in power from our phones, the power from other devices in our home, the compute power from the edge of network or fully in the cloud. And all of those GPU, CPU cycles will be used in concert to create uh, an experience. And now, when, when a lot of people would describe Web 2 as to where we are now. We're not, this isn't new territory. Think about Uber. Well, we've got a rendering system on our, on our phones. Or it's interacting with, with, with cell towers and satellite to show where we are and, and where, where the cars are. It's, it's connecting to a billing system. There's an authentication and identity server that tells us what we're allowed to do. And our credit card is like in all of us up. That's a orchestration of different services to create one seemingly simple application. What happens next, if that's web, you know, 2.0, I hate to use the term web three because it means something different, but the next iteration of, of the web in stages and steps rapidly will evolve towards real-time 3D interactive away from 2D non-real-time, non-interactive, which is the primary, you know, notion that you see out there today. So you just mentioned about credit cards and how, you know, app-based economy does so many different things. Google just talked about opening up their platform to third-party billing systems, uh, such as Spotify. And I was wondering if you had an overall take on just the control both Google and Apple have in terms of kind of managing their app stores and setting rules, whether it's IDFA changes or third-party billing systems, and what kind of impact does it have on a company like you, which is across multi-ecosystems and multiple devices, wondering what's your take there? Well, look, one of the things that a company like ours needs to do is thrive in any environment. And the things like IDFA, we anticipated, I don't know, five, six years ago, we, we knew the underlying you know, principles and philosophies of Apple, and we see what's possible. We look at rivalries. We imagine this, and as our avid investors know, we were very prepared for it to talk growth through that cycle. But let me just step back for a minute. There is an enormous amount of conversation in, in the public domain around, you know, what a Google or what an Apple should do. And I, I would tell you, I go back a ways. So I've been messing around with, you know, games since Atari and the Commodore 64 and launch products on every hardware platform that's ever existed in gaming. I've been doing this a while. And I would say that one of the things that's sort of interesting is sort of time discounts all business decisions in a really important way. So there's choice when uh, a platform owner oversteps and does something that ultimately results in, you know, something less uh, appreciated by their audience, they lose market share and then they adjust. Um, a reasonable example of this would have been, you know, two generations on Xbox. They, they pushed really hard for it to be sort of a movie platform and a lot of other stuff, but the gamers really wanted a gaming platform and they lost market share. They took a leading position and lost it to Sony around better performance on games for better focus. That happens with great regularity. I think we can all remember if we're old enough anyway, 
when, when the leading platform in the world was in terms of hardware. And, you know, I think, you know, if you spend some time on eBay, you could probably find a device to make my Sega. And so the, the point that I'm making here is, you know, all of these platform companies are going to, you know, act with, you know, in competition with one another and seeking to win favor with their customers and their business partners. And, you know, content makers will favor platforms that enable them to do better. I have a great deal of respect for the recent announcements that, that Google has made, not just with regard to the app store and app, you know, app store payments, but also some of the things that they've done in the way they've approached privacy. I also understand what philosophies derive, you know, from the Apple leadership team and for Apple, they make sense and for their ecosystem, that makes sense. And so, um. They get to make their decisions. We get to make ours. We need to work in concert and close partnership with them. And we do, but you know, it's sort of, I just don't really engage a lot in the notion of, you know, sort of, sort of back of room criticism. And it's born of the fact that I've been through probably 50 platform launches and, you know, the market weighs and the market decides and we'll see ebbing and flowing in the market share and market position. And there's always one more new innovation that shocks everybody and, you know, takes over or takes a position from them. So deep respect for both Google and Apple. I'm not sure the peanut gallery is going to have that much impact. I think they're going to continue to do with each other, but relative competitive will cause them to act. And that's why it's fun to watch, you know, the first salvo, you know, from Apple and then a response from Google and they're different. And in being different, it will cause people to have choice. And those people that have choice may drive positions in a different direction. So, so shifting gears a little bit here and speaking about um, VR and AR opportunities with Unity. I mean, you mentioned in your intro that uh, over two thirds of games and VR are made with Unity. And as a, you know, as a gamer myself, not many know this, but Beat Saber, which is one of the most famous VR games is made with, <laughs> Unity, with Unity. My question there, you know, how do you, how should investors think about the tools that you have available for creators to create more VR and AR content, you know? Unity Mars is one example that comes to mind. So, so first off, a term of art you're probably not familiar with is, is build target. And so when you use the normal version of Unity, we set this up years ago, and you're targeting the content to work on a Quest or a Quest 2 or any of the other, you know, devices, HoloLens that are out there, Barjo, et cetera, there are build targets, you know, you check that. And what that does is it compiles the code to be optimal for that platform. So the reason we're chosen so consistently for AR and VR applications is because it's literally a checkbox. And so it's not like they need to do a lot. Now I've got a couple of engineers, a couple hundred engineers that are doing a lot to make the instructions that convey through the editor, the unity editor and how it works maps to the buttons and the controls and the systems and the way 3D is presented. Behind all of that, of course, we've had to do an awful lot of work to ensure whether it's UI for the device or, you know, the appropriate compensation for interocular distance. So the distance between your eyes and when that registrate, you'd be surprised by me, get that off by a quarter minute, you're going to have a headache for a week. And so, cause then your eyes and your brain don't register in the right way. It happens naturally in the real world because your eyes are your eyes. When somebody presents you, for example, your best friend's eyes are narrow and beady to you. You're going to have, a, as I said, it'll feel like an ice cream headache. So getting all that stuff to work right, we're really good at. So we make it simple and transparent. We've also released some tools that I think are, are super interesting that, that sort of describe a future. 
where um, we call it MARS, M-A-R-S, and that's for creating AR or VR applications from inside an AR and VR environment. So most typically what happens when somebody's creating AR VR content because of the fidelity and all the keys of a keyboard, they're creating on their computer and they might be looking at an image on another device or they're looking at the runtime window of community to see what it looks like as they're coding. That's one of the benefits of Unity. Not only does it create real-time applications, it allows you to see the application you're building in the moment you're making it. So you can see things from different angles. A lot of developers also have yet another device, like for example, it'll take a you know HoloLens or a, and they can look at the application as they're coding it in that device. Now, some do that where it's just like hanging on a stand and they pick it up and put it on because it's, it's hard to have something in front of your face while you're typing on your... They also sometimes do that where one of their colleagues is looking at, like the artist might be looking at, no, it's not what I meant, I meant this. And so there's a, a rich development environment, but... The future right now, it's a little primitive relative to where it can be, but it is wicked cool to create a AR and VR from within that environment. You're looking around from all angles and, and then you're using, like you can pretend there's a touch keyboard on your wrist and then you can control, essentially an easel shows up in the environment for you to draw or, or register commands. Now it's not as easy to write, you know, 60 characters of code inside an AR and VR environment. It's not, the fidelity isn't quite high enough, but that's going to change in time. So to answer your question, it just works in Unity. That's why they like it. Um, that's why it's so pervasive. And then there are the beginnings of tomorrow inside of tools like, like Mars. And, you know, someday, you know, you've seen some demonstrations from the, some of the platform companies that sort of virtual keyboard. I've tried to use them. They're pretty cool. That shows you got the head, your, your headset on and you see a keyboard in front of you and you could map your fingers to it. I don't know if you remember when you got rid of, you're probably too young for this, got rid of your BlackBerry and got your first touch screen. It took us a couple years to get used to the touch interface. My sense is there needs to be additional development around those sort of digitally visual keyboards in the environment we're in. And I think that in time will get us to a better place. And you can certainly expect that anybody making an AR VR device will have that capability and they're going to get advanced. So works right out of the box, easy, lots of plugins to make it work better. And then there's tools development for more that's coming down the pipeline. Let's move to competition. One of the things that comes up in our conversations with investors is they think of Roblox as a play on just, you know, consumer time. So one view is probably Roblox can take share from the social media companies in terms of engagement and time spent. Is there a, something a Unity plans to do around, you know, just vertically integrating where they have more, you know, applications that are built on Unity's tools so that you can kind of increase your share of time spent on Unity's vertically integrated apps? So let me tease apart two points. So there's lots of games in the world and there's lots of game sort of mini ecosystems where you build games inside of a game for other people to play. Minecraft is, is very much like Roblox in that regard. And, you know, now owned by, by Microsoft, Roblox, of course, is an independent company. There's a fast rising company based in Seattle called Rec Room, which is a very similar thesis. You know, with a Web3 sort of notion, there are companies like Sandbox that are rising, again, in that same arena. So, you know, what I would say, and then of course you could, 
you can build variations inside of Fortnite. And then inside of most games, there's some sort of a content creation universe where you, you, can, you can create things, although it's a spectrum. So in a, in a traditional sports game, you can't create that much, maybe trade players and those kinds of things. In, in games like, I don't know, like a golf game like Tiger Woods, you can create all the characters that becomes different, trade them with other people. As you continue to evolve, you create multiple games that look like Roblox games or look like Minecraft games within the same rule system and, and, and graphics interface. Those um, largely fit in the, con- in the category of what I would describe as intellectual properties, singular intellectual properties. And one of the things that's very true um, in the gaming industry is, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. It's just one of those things where that, yeah, I can remember being asked, you know, would anything ever be bigger than, would anything be ever be bigger than Angry Birds? And would anything ever be bigger than FIFA? And would anything ever be bigger than The Sims? And would anything ever be bigger than Call of Duty? And would anything ever be bigger than Grand Theft Auto? And would anything ever be bigger than Roblox? And the answer to that question is always yeah, because there is, you know, if you go back to my mom's era, would anything ever be bigger than Mickey Mouse? It was the most universal global icon on the planet. And, and so in, in the fullness of time, there, you know, consumer audiences tend to move on and great companies. And, you know, could, you could include some of the, you know, the major video game companies like, you know, take two around GTA or Activision around Call of Duty. They find a way to renew interest in their intellectual property and bring out something new. But, you know, to this day, where's Angry Birds now, right? So there, there's, there's cycles in all of this. Now, separate from that, you know, we don't make game applications, right? We make tools to make games. And every one of the companies with the exception of Roblox that I just mentioned is a customer of Unity and we don't compete with our customers. But there are some things that are inherent in some of those ecosystems that I think are pretty compelling ideas. You'll see us participate in a very big way. So, you know, my sense is, is that now is the time or the coming years to simplify, to get to a no code place where you can make all sorts of applications, gaming and non-gaming in real time 3D. But remember the output of real time 3D is an application and that by, by definition is complicated. So we're taking that head on. You'll see us look at consumer and business applications that are incredibly simple. And we've already done that. One of the reasons we're doing so well outside of gaming is we have applications for people that can build car configurators or retail spaces with no coding and importing and adjusting assets. And these applications are being, you know, rapidly adopted inside of auto um, engineering uh, construction industries. And so you'll also see this do consumer applications and that's in that same thesis, we're testing some things right now, but the thesis is not to compete with those that we want as our customers. We want to win our customers, but to continue to be the by far preferred content creation platform in this issue of creating. So it's one thing to create. If you've noticed, if you create something inside of Roblox, it all looks and behaves much the same. If you create something in mind, Minecraft, it, it, it looks and behaves much the same. It doesn't mean they're not, they're not getting different games out of them and different rules, but it's essentially a variation on the same thing. It's like how many ways you can, you know, if you give you six ingredients and it's chocolate cake and chocolate frosting and whipped cream and candles. You can make a lot of different, you make cupcakes, you can make three layer cakes, five layer cakes, but it's not with chocolate cake. The, the Unity developer wants to make anything and everything. And they don't, we, our users, I don't think 
want to be trapped inside of an ecosystem like a Roblox or a Minecraft. They want to compete or, or venture into the wider world of app stores and being available on more devices and more opportunity. So, you know, yeah, we see the opportunity. It's something that we spend, I personally spend a lot of time on. We have a, a strong group of people in our company working on that. So you expect to see us in more places in that way in the years to come. And, and staying with that topic, uh, earlier this week, you guys released uh, this amazing trailer uh, of enemies to showcase some of uh, the, you know, how the Unity's, uh, you know, design engine can, you know, can render 3D animations. Sticking with that topic, we've seen also this week how uh, a major publisher of video game CDPR made an agreement with another, you know, engine developer. Do you think the trend is going to that direction? Meaning this major game publisher, instead of uh, investing in their own engines to to, you know, and develop engines to develop these games, you might shift to like a Unity because as to the, the trailer that I mentioned earlier, uh, I mean, it just looks way better than most of the games that are being published today. So first off, the way something looks is not the only thing that makes it successful. Unreal makes a fine game engine. They build Fortnite and it. it looks relatively primitive when you look at it because it wasn't graphics they were after. So that was a design decision, right? Matisse is not a, a bad painter because he decided to paint in 2D, right? He was trying to do something. I could have painted, painted with a 3D perspective, but chose not to. And so it's not always photorealistic, you know, graphics. So yes, we did put out a, a trailer this week. And that's, by the way, 3D and interactive. That's a real-time presentation which blows people away. It looks photorealistic. And we put that out there to prove to people, it's GDC week. We put it out there to prove to people what's possible if you want to go there. And some people do want to go there. Film industry wants to go there. Some games want to go there and they can. And now we've shown them how inside of the internet. The second thing is there's good rivalry in the game industry for, for market share. And, you know, games do sign up for our competition. Now I, I would point out that, you know, five years ago, we had no position in mobile and, in, uh, in console gaming. And today about half of all console games are built in unity, which is you know, zero to 50 isn't bad. Secondly, we had relatively low position in PC and where we're half of all PCs games now where we had less than a 10 share in mobile and say it's over 70. So it's a gigantic trend away from, you know, using self to a game engine to using Unity. That trend is, is not just small. Those, those market share numbers are even in my boardroom, somewhat breathtaking. Now we're very proud of that. We've been working hard. Part of the reason I, I pay attention to this stuff, of course, is in my prior life, I worked in the game industry. And I built over, I didn't build them. My team's built over 15 game engines in my time. And it's a, it's a space that it's near and dear to my heart. I'm here because I love that technology. And it's been, you know, my, my great pride and my great opportunity to, to do so at Unity and bring it to the world. Uh, so we are down to our last five minutes and we saved that for rapid fire questions. So uh, you can keep your comments brief here. Let me start off with, you know, what China is trying to do with, you know, putting some restrictions around the gaming time. What's your view around an upper limit to the time that should be spent on gaming and just, you know, tying it to the teenage population? Well, look, I, I would say that, you know, I've got two kids and when I raised them, I limited them to 10 hours of, of sort of video, television, gaming, you know, interaction, you know, during the, during the school week uh, or during the week, because I wanted them to have a life outdoors and to play sports and to engage with family and see some sunshine in addition to engaging in the, the never ending pull of a, of a game console or a PC. So that's how I raise my kids. I think there's, a, there's some good logic in that. Yeah, I think that 
the data around, you know, game addiction is pretty dubious. I think it's, I can tell you lots of stories about China where, you know, I've, I've learned and, and understood and interacted with, with government officials there. It is unusual for governments um, to start to restrict what, what consumers can do, but a prior mayor in New York made it illegal to have a big gulp at 7-Eleven because they thought somehow whatever 40 ounces of soft drink was too much. It won't be the first time and it won't be the last time a government tries to tell people um, what they can eat, what they can see, you know, what they can apply. And in my experience, at least, if you go back, they, they, someone once said the nadir of human existence was the year 548 in terms of the least freedom we've had on this planet as humans. At any 50-year period from then, and there's been quite a few of them, the world's gotten freer. The world's gotten uh, to a place with more choice, uh, more self-determination, more agency. You know, these things will pass. You know, when they pass in time for somebody's next quarter, if they're dependent on their game in China, maybe not. But, you know, consumers there are pretty technically savvy. They love games. And, you know, the government's taking action on a number of fronts. You know, I, I think they've lived in the category of, you know, similar to what I was saying around platforms. They should do what they think is right, you know, for their world. And there will be an unnoticed negotiation between the people that live there and the people that, that, that govern there to land in a place that works. Right now, it's uh, pushing back a little bit about game time. Now, for what it's worth, for most game companies, game time doesn't matter much. They care whether you pay for something in terms of their revenue. And that actually hasn't diminished much. So... It hasn't been, been, I haven't seen a big impact on that side. Do you like the consolidation in this space with Microsoft buying Activision and the Take-Two deal? So any comments around consolidation? It's just something, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. The game industry is, you know, one where there's always been consolidation. You know, I can, you know, Activision bought Blizzard, you know, EA bought Maxis, which was behind the sounds. And Ubisoft has acquired, you know, 20 studios or time. Sony's bought many, Microsoft bought many. The really neat thing is how dynamic the industry is for innovators and startups. And there's always going to be more. And so um, I welcome it, but I also recognize that it creates the opportunity because sometimes when big companies acquire things, it, they, they tend to focus on heavy sequels and, and continued play with that, which leaves room for somebody new to come to the scene. And the newness really wins in a spectacular way when there's new technology. And so... And we don't have time to get into this, but Web3 policies yeah. around payments, XR devices coming out in, in, in a torrent, those, those create opportunities for innovators. And so, you know, the, the, the mature companies get acquired and that creates an enormous umbrella around which innovation can thrive. This has been terrific. Thank you so much, John, for doing this. Uh, really loved, you know, the entire conversation and thank you to our listeners. And with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you again, John. Thank it you, Mandy. An absolute pleasure. Yes.